0: Operation Barbarossa's much lauded success began as just another episode of Nazi propaganda. Yet this has been given amazing longevity and even a guise of historical truth by continual acceptance in stoutly uncritical military histories. In spite of some severe early blows to the Red Army, the German Army never really came close to their definitive goal of conquering the Soviet Union. Indeed, It was these early successes which led to the Wehrmacht's own rapid exhaustion and insurmountable difficulties. By mid-August 1941, it was already abundantly clear that Barbarossa would fall well short of achieving its operational objectives, while the ongoing scale of attrition would paradoxically transform its legacy from the annihilation of the Red Army to the ceaseless destruction of the German Wehrmacht. While the precise path to an Allied victory was by no means clear in late August 1941, Germany's inability to win the war was at least assured. Accordingly, if on 22nd June 1941, Hitler was right, and the world did indeed collectively hold its breath, the course of operations ensured that, by the middle of August, the world could breathe again. To Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm your host, Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. Today I'm joined by a very special guest to talk about the Eastern Front of World War II. is the author of six books on the Eastern Front and the co-author and co-editor of four more, with another coming in May. His books have overturned our understanding of the war in the East, particularly of Operation Barbarossa and the Battle of Moscow. Quote, by forfeiting its only possibility of eliminating the Soviet Union in 1941, Germany was destined for a long war against an emerging superpower which it could not hope to overcome. Operation Barbarossa was more than just a lost campaign. The scale and importance of the Eastern Theater ensured that the summer of 1941 was the turning point of World War II." So I think uh, regular listeners have an idea who this is. Yes, you're right. My guest is none other than David Stahl, Senior Lecturer in European History at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. His books are based on very deep research, down to reading the battlefield journals of individual units. And thus, they provide the richest, most immediate facts from the ground, from the very battlefield, about the progress of the war. And they also provide some surprising analysis and conclusions that, as I mentioned, turn around our entire conception of the war in the east. Eastern Front history buffs, you're really going to love this conversation. So
1: how are you, David? Very well, very well. We've uh, we have a different, obviously, sort of yearly schedule from the northern hemisphere. So today is our first day of teaching, and uh, that's um, uh, it's definitely a lot busier around here now. <laughs> we have just had the summer and no one's around for the whole time, and now everyone's right. back.
0: Yeah, and when does the term actually begin?
1: Um, so it starts today, but it would go until. Uh, June, and then we would have our very, very short winter break. It sounds crazy to say that to people in your part of the world, June, but uh, we'd have a very mm-hmm. short winter break, two weeks, and then we come back again. This place is a little bit different from the rest of Australia just because it's the Australian Military Academy or Defence Force oh. Academy, and therefore our the preference from the military is they want to squeeze everything into one year so that they can get a long summer for all their training. Wow. So, right? Yep. The other,
0: the other, the military kind of training.
1: Yeah. They, they do some during the year as well, but then they have like um what they call single service training. Cause it's army, Navy, air force all here, but then they all go away in the summer and do special army or Navy or air force training. And they want more time for that, as well as they want to give their students all the, the or the cadets all the leave and so on. So yeah, um they they want a lot of time at that point which is actually great for us because it means we squeeze all the the teaching in well squeeze it in over sort of two-thirds of the year and then you have a big long you know almost four-month break where you can really go and do research and so on well depends on the person but yeah
0: that sounds awesome i would i'd I'd love to be able to do that kind of thing too um i can just see uh getting a lot done um but anyway i want to again thank you for for agreeing to join me um Beyond Barbarossa is the first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front. There are a lot of podcasts about um, World War II, and they all mention uh, the Eastern Front and mention Barbarossa, Stalingrad, and so on. But um, I'm I'm concentrating on it, and I, I really did get a lot out of your uh, books on the subject, uh, and um, and I I did enjoy those. And I found them, as I said, I got a lot out of them. I really found them eye-opening. I, thought, I think you brought um, some facts and some ways of thinking to the subject that I hadn't come across before. So before we get too deep into that, maybe um, if you could just tell my listeners a bit about your work and what brought you to it.
1: Sure. Um, so you're right. Uh, I really have found myself... Um, working almost exclusively on the Eastern Front. In some ways, I think that's also interesting because occasionally when I get introduced, people say, David's a specialist on the Eastern Front of the Second World War, which is correct. But I often sometimes also think, you know, given the the overwhelming bulk of anyone who served in the Wehrmacht in the Second World War was serving in the East, and it's mm-hmm. not really a specialisation. It's not like, you know, that's the area that I've chosen to focus on among... Many, yes, I have. But the reality is that's where most people fought. If you if you were to research Norwegian occupation, you'd be very much the exception to the rule. You'd you'd have to I really scratch someone, around.
0: Yeah, I oh, do yeah, know go. someone, another writer who uh, who focuses on on Norwegian uh, yeah. history of the war. Um, uh, she's a friend of mine.
1: And and as important as that is, it's it's. Um, you know, it's an atypical experience of occupation. I, I don't know the, the. I mean, I, there is a resistance movement there and I'm sure it's still, I actually had a man once uh, when I was in Denmark, he showed me some, homemade hammer that he said, this is what we used to attack Germans with. And I thought, goodness gracious, okay. So, you know, there's resistance Everyone, I don't want to say that it's, a, you know, that was the, well, I think some German soldiers would say that was the good place to be. But it's just to show there's a multiplicity of different places you can serve, but the East is the overwhelming sort of, uh, you know, um, it's the default area where you will end up if you sign into the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. Right. And therefore, that becomes the the typical experience. So everything else becomes atypical. And while it's just as important to look at a uh, you know, North African campaign or the U-boat mm-hmm. campaign and so on, again, they're, they're the exception to the rule. And I would also say perhaps, you know, given where we might be headed today, um, those then become, um, there's no question they're important, but they're... I would say less important than looking at the the conflict in the East.
0: Right. And it see a lot of people, especially here in North America, um, that's not the understanding. The default is Western Europe. Uh, You know, for Canadians, it's the Sicilian campaign, the Italian campaign, Normandy, um, a a little bit Hong Kong um, and um, Mm. the Pacific. But mostly, it's it's Western Europe, and I think for I don't, maybe are things different in in Australia? Do you know do people when you say Second World War? Do they? I, I would guess it's the Pacific, it's um, uh, New Guinea, and so on.
1: Absolutely, look, that, that's true. There's there's a couple of different narratives there for. Places like Australia, but but by and large, it's still an Anglo-American focus on the war. I, mm. I would think your average. Um, person maybe not your average person who reads world war ii but your average person would have far less visibility about scale or scope of what's happening Mm -hmm. in eastern europe relative to everything else and in some ways you have to understand it i mean i teach first year students or we actually we used to teach first year students world war ii we changed as of uh, last year um and look from their point of view there's an eastern front even if they know that Mm -hmm. much there's a a Western front, as of uh, you know, whether it's North Africa or Sicily or Italy or or France, but there's something happening in the West. Um, there's a, a an air campaign. There's a there's a naval campaign in the Atlantic. Then there's the whole Pacific War, and it just therefore looks like the Eastern front is one more of many. What what people lack mm-hmm. is is an appreciation of scale, and that is not to invalidate uh, anyone who fights in any other area but it is to say mm-hmm. numbers matter and uh you know there are a few uh oh, there's one scholarly attempt to try and invalidate the eastern front so um, phillips o'brien uh, who's got a book um how the war was won and i know i'm not on social media but he tweets a lot of this kind of stuff as well and look mm-hmm. he has a wholly different thesis and a wholly different approach to how we understand the eastern front relative to everything else which is not really what we're here for um but you know of course there's you know welcome to the world right there's a lot of different books out there, a lot of debates, a lot of different people, they're welcome to the table, right? Let's have that conversation. Mm-hmm, yes. But yeah, no, I don't agree with him, <laughs> not perhaps surprisingly, um, because at the end of the day, yeah, numbers do matter.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of numbers, um, it's my understanding, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's about five times as many men, uh, troops uh, involved in, co- in combat on the Eastern Front compared to you know, say even after uh, nineteen forty four
1: in um, in the West. So I don't have numbers, uh, you know, at hand. I don't know exactly how many men did the did, did the you know, for example, the United States have mobilized. Are we counting all those mobilized or all those in field? Like you know, on small Pacific islands, there's actually not that mm. many men. Um, uh, I don't quite know how we uh, arrive at that figure. But yeah, you're right. The Red Army, by the time it gets to Berlin, apparently has in total uh, something like 12 million men in it. So it's huge. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I think the other side to it is um, obviously at the sharp end of war, uh, the casualty figures often speak for themselves as well. And, and the, the casualties just aren't as extreme. I mean, if you're looking at North Africa, and this goes on for many years, but the Germans never have more than 50,000 men there in the entirety of the war. Rommel never has more than three divisions, um, which is not, again, to say that the, the fighting wasn't um, intense or important, but relative to what's on the Eastern Front at that point, which is 150 German divisions, it, the scale is extremely yeah. different.
0: Yeah, yeah, three million men to start with on on Eastern Front. I think that's important too, and and that's kind of what well, something really what led into it, but that's the the major um, theme for me, I guess, is that just you know the scale of the of the war, and also the scale of the ge- the geographic scale, how large a territory we're talking about. Uh-huh. No, indeed. Very yeah. Actually,
1: you did ask that before, and I didn't really pick up on it, but um, yeah, I I. I... I would say scale actually was my entry point. I remember being a first year student at Monash University in Melbourne, discovering this war and thinking that can't be right. Did they just say (laughs) millions? How's that? What's that? And then going back to our earlier point, I mean, we're we're like every country. We're probably mainly obsessed with our own history. And while Australia's role in the second world war is in its own way, in our own region, somewhat significant, there's a lot of US help as well, but some of the campaigns, we we are fighting some of them, um, predominantly with Australians, and then we make a big deal of it. So as a kid, you know, you hear a lot about these, and, you know, I'm not sure I would agree with the analysis always. Some people like to talk about Kokoda Trail as a decisive battle of the Second World War. Then you go and discover how many guys were there. And there's a couple of hundred guys, right? And yeah. you sort of think, okay, I don't know if that's decisive in the way I might think of decisive for a war that involves tens of millions of people. But, uh, but at the same time, take nothing away from, from uh, you know, Australia's history. That's important too. But as someone discovering history, I started to think, well, if I'm going to sink my teeth into this and spend years researching it as I started to develop to, to decide, oh, I think I'm going to do this as a postgraduate exercise, um, it became clear it's definitely worth you know, learning a language and, and, and really pursuing this. Uh, and yeah. that takes me to the German side and then that takes you to Eastern Europe. So yeah.
0: it's
1: kind of a natural progression.
0: That leads nicely into my next question. But before we get to that, we have to take a short break. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know, I'm Scott Burry, the writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, please consider subscribing or following or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it. For now and the foreseeable future, all money coming through my Patreon account will go to support Ukrainian refugees until it's safe for every Ukrainian to return home. Visit Beyond Barbarossa to find the links. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. I'm here with David Stahl, Senior Lecturer in European History, at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia, and the author of several books that I depend on for this podcast. So David, you were explaining before the break that uh, your approach to the Eastern Front starts with the understanding that for the soldier who signed up uh, for the Wehrmacht in 1941, the Eastern Front was the default. That's where you were probably going to go. So that brings up my next question. I am curious uh, about your way of doing this research, because what I found from the, um, the books of yours that I've read, uh, and I'm going to put the titles in, in the, and the links in the, in the show notes, and they'll be available to everybody and on the website. But you ha- looked at the uh, war journals, uh, the reports from units involved in the fighting, Um, you know, the daily or weekly reports that went presumably back to headquarters and so on. And I I think I read that you did go to Germany, you went to Russia to get these uh, into these records. Um, Can you tell us just a bit about that?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I, I understand there's many roads to Rome on doing this sort of thing, but I Uh, I actually moved to Germany. I did it at a German university. Um, I worked with Rolf Dieter Müller, who was, um, you know, very prominent in not just World War II history, but he had a major role in das Deutsche Reich in der Zweite Weltkrieg. So this multi-volume German, it's not really the official history, but it's as as official as Germany gets. Um, And so I worked with him and, you know, I was very much integrated into those circles. Not that, I would say Germany does a lot of military history. Um, They certainly do a lot on the Second World War, but Mm. it's actually even somewhat taboo. So if you imagine what I do is operational history, that doesn't really exist in scholarship in Germany. In fact, I'll never forget Muller said to me, David, you understand if you do this topic, it won't be well-received within the university. And to be honest with you, I didn't really know what he meant when he first said that. I kind of thought, not well-received. Why would it not be well-received? I mean... Mm what have I done wrong before I've done anything, you know? Um, But it's a cultural comment that he was making. And it did make sense. I ended up living in Germany for over 10 years. So it became very clear to me what he meant by that subsequently. And essentially there's no engagement with military history, like not that operational kind that we do in the Anglo-American world. They will do a lot on the Nazi state. They will do a lot on criminality, the Holocaust. Uh, the Wehrmacht is, is is a is a huge topic because of the criminality, especially in the East. But therefore, for a lot of Germans in the academy, there's a sense that well, this operational stuff with tanks and armies and soldiers—and what—that's all beside the point. That's not mm. what we do here. And the other problem that's ah—and that might sound strange to Anglo-Americans—but the thing that's really driving it, I think, is maybe it depends on the age of the German. But uh, if you asked, what did they do in Nazi Germany? What did what do they do in the universities then? What did they do for history? oh, it was military history. It was very, very military. Of course, it's all very nationalistic and great and glorious and all the rest of it, but that leads to an immediate taboo after the war. God, the last thing we need Mm -hmm. is more of that. And we aren't trying to, you know, this is one of the confusing points people had with me, that we aren't trying to learn the lessons of war because we don't want to fight any more of these things and try and occupy countries. And, of course, it seems obvious to us, but I would just have to say, well, I'm not trying to, you know, what do you think I'm doing here? But they would think it's sometimes a reflection of your politics. Like, oh, oh, you must be some right-wing guy trying to do, I thought to myself, you guys are the ones making the supposition here. Um, mm. And the other thing I could always say to them, and I, and, I, and I think this dial is slightly moving, is if you say that the central engagement um for maybe Germany or for an individual is the Holocaust. That's the that's the key thing. Then you understand, because I also read those books, that there is a, a radicalization of Nazi policy as the war goes on. Now, if you accept that, and I think It's quite clear. Everyone does. That's the orthodoxy in Holocaust studies. Mm -hmm. How can you understand that radicalization if you don't study the war? Because one is directly linked to the other. The worse the war gets, the more the radicalization takes place. Mm -hmm. So where are your operational historians? I am not operating it. In, in an opposed way to these people we complement each other right. in fact i'd say military history has come a long way because we get so many insights into motivation from all this engagement with how does the national socialist mindset work what is ideology what's driving policy and some of that has a cross-pollination with military so it's not that we're on opposite sides of something or i'm a distraction from what mm. they think it, but there's a lot more um there's a lot more unity and i think actually you know, as a younger, not maybe as, as as young as I used to be 10 years ago when I started this or even 15 years ago, but there's a lot of people in my generation and younger who totally get that. There is no questioning anymore at conferences, or at least a lot less among people my, my age who have different, I mean, I've collaborated with a, a very good scholar in Germany, Alex Kay, who's got quite a few books, a recent one on um, empire of destruction. And yeah, uh, I think that's a really positive development that a guy with a very different set of expertise within the Nazi state collaborates by me. And I notice in our conversations, we're always riffing off each other. And, you know, that's a, that's a real va- advantage.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. It sparks more creativity, doesn't it? You know, mm, somebody else's indeed. idea leads you to, and you find new roads to explore. And indeed. Uh, one other point I wanted to just touch on um, was the, the idea that, um, uh, So much more information became available than uh, in 1990, 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart. uh, All of a sudden, there's more records, more data to to delve into. Um, And how just how significant was that in in worldwide understanding of the of the Eastern Front? So
1: Um, I think this is on the Soviet side. There's certainly a a, a huge amount more access to files that previously weren't accessible. For the German side, that didn't really make much difference at all. Mm. Although... Uh, although, yeah, I don't know exactly when this begins, but there are, of course, German documents that were captured by the Soviets that weren't necessarily accessible. Um, And I'm not sure exactly when those became accessible. It may have been in the 1990s, but uh, certainly in more recent years, there is a website that's publicly accessible called German Docs in Russia. It's basically, I mean, it's a huge number of files and what's particularly good is they're fully accessible it's not just like oh here's a list of all the files that are somewhere no no you can click into them and you can turn the pages and see it all Um, uh, so that's really good and I wish that the German Bundesarchiv would have something similar because, of course, I have to fly out to Germany, although that's fine to go and get the files back in the day. It was much easier when I was living there. Um, but, of course, the other thing there is uh, these archives, I think people underestimate how big they are. If you are going to research Kokoda Trail, it's very possible you could go to, into the Australian War Memorial or the Australian National Archives and spend a couple of weeks and pretty much read it all. Um, there's mm. only so many pages, right? But this mm-hmm. is completely different on the German side. Again, 150 divisions generates a phenomenal number of paper uh, uh, amount of paper as you said before are they daily reports and so on yep daily big war diaries and then you think those divisions all record up to corps. there are 44 corps on the eastern front Rommel has one core so mm-hmm. 44 on the eastern front okay that's another whole order of magnitude in terms of paper and then there's 13 armies and then there's three army yeah. groups and then you get into the OKH the high command of the German army and this is just the the army right we got to get into yeah. not that there's a lot of Luftwaffe files because most of them are burned but if you want to start pursuing this you can read as long as you want to read mm. um there's almost no end to it the, these things that think of like warehouses as an as an archive yeah. um yeah. so when people say oh, i'm an expert on the german army of the second world war i sometimes think in my head Are you really? What part did you read about? I'm sure you could be an expert on something, but no one's read it all.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. But then how do you select um, which archives, which records to focus on, to read, and then to, you know, figure into your work?
1: hundred percent. That's exactly the question I would ask any PhD student who's zooming in on this thing, because it's all so huge. And maybe as just a point before I come to your question, you know, I do think that's the evolution of this war, maybe in the decades to come or in the next century or something. But at the moment, we still talk in this generic way. We talk about, oh, what happened on the Eastern Front in 1941? And I get that question. So we start answering it. But I think what's going to become more and more clear as we get more and more information is the war happening in the South is not the same happening in the center. It's not the same happening in the north Mm. different geographies different topographies different um commanders with different command ethos different units with different um um uh, equipment, you know, Ausstattung and so on. So, you know, Panzer group is not, uh, sorry, or Panzer forces are not the same as motorized, are not the same as infantry or mountain. Mm. And even within those, if you sort of break down those divisions, you start to realize, hang on, this division's fully outfitted with French trucks. They've got French anti-tank yeah. guns. So whatever the standard for Germany is, that's not this division. Um, and there's all different, um, yeah, uh, you know, specific factors that as you start to read in, you realize, you know, the devil's in the detail. So, mm-hmm. so these are important things for my work i started with a similar premise i basically decided i want to measure how do operations progress in the east and of course if you've got 150 divisions that's a lot of them but only 30 of those divisions are motorized or panzer um divisions now they're really what's driving all of this forward in that sense it's kind of a a misnomer to think of this armored juggernaut that's invading the east Um, it's actually a finite part of the German army. Mm. And therefore you could read a lot less to find out a lot more about how it operates, how it moves, how does logistics work. And if it doesn't work in this small part of the German army, then you know that it's, It's not dependent really on the plodding infantry divisions that are following up with 600,000 horses and, you know, I don't know how many wagons, but that's not driving this forward, not in the way that we colloquially refer to as blitzkrieg, this kind of, you know, rapid war of manoeuvre, and, uh, you know, I, I think therefore... I focused on uh, Panzer Group 2 and Panzer Group 3. There are four on the Eastern Front. Those mm-hmm. are the two largest. They're about a third larger than the other two. And they're both concentrated inside Army Group Centre. So it's very clear from yeah. German strategic planning that this is where they see the great sort of thrust in the centre. They're going to really break through here. So I decided to use at least my first book, which was basically my PhD, to, to measure the first two months through the Battle of Minsk and Smolensk um, mm-hmm. to see how, does the, how do these operations progress? And maybe as a starting thesis, I didn't quite know at that point what I was going to find. I didn't want to you know, prejudge my conclusions, but I was looking for how seamless are the operations? What sort of problems are they encountering? Um, a lot of the books I'd read until that point cast this all in very, you know, decisive terms. And this is the Germans at the high point and the Soviets mm-hmm. are toppling backwards and everything. At the same time, I always had this question in my head and I guess it's the starting one. If this is supposed to be a six to 10 week operation, and everything's so successful, what happens by the end of August? All I read is these wonderful uh, descriptions of how, you know, all conquering the Germans are. So where's the victory? You know, yeah. they, they, they seem to never have a defeat, but but they don't also achieve their strategic goal. So something must be going on. And then occasionally you'd find these little tidbits about just how devastated an, invi- an individual panzer division was. And it's not because they've lost it all in combat. It's because the wear and tear has been such that, you know, these are essentially nineteen thirties tanks. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not robust um, in the way that tanks might be might be today, uh, and they're driving hundreds of kilometres on terrible roads. Not yeah. surprisingly, no they roads. break down, yeah. or no roads, indeed. <laughs> yeah. um, and and that's one of the things I discovered in the columns of the the Panzer divisions is they had a column for Einsatzbereit, um, so uh, you know, serviceable tanks. They had one for Total uh, Ausfall, so totally lost, so destroyed. But then they had a third column for basically broken down tanks. And that third column was often very large and large numbers of tanks. And that explains it. So you have to ask all these secondary questions. How do you repair a tank on the Eastern Front in 1941? Oh, there's not really a mechanism for that. In all the past campaigns, we transported them back to factories and fixed them. And then you start to realize, okay, if that's your mechanism, then you're going to be in trouble here. And everything's an improvisation. Exactly. And then you've got to ask, okay, so a lot of tanks here, a lot of them are Czech tanks or French. Well, there's not that many French tanks. They actually reserve those for occupation duties, but they are Czech tanks. There's different types of German tanks. And mm-hmm. then tanks are only one thing, right? Tanks only really can do what they do because they get supply. So where's all that coming from? Trucks. There's a multiplicity of truck makes like dozens and dozens. Yeah. Um, again, these have all knock-on effects for spare parts and repairs, and they're all suffering equally. Um so you start to realize, okay, there's a lot of things undercutting this invasion that have nothing to do with what you imagine is stopping it, which is oh, the Red Army. Mm-hmm. Um, so even at the Red Army, we can all agree is in real trouble, but still fighting fanatically in certain areas, some parts it's just completely disintegrating. Um, there are just um geographic factors uh and to do with technical sides of things like there's a lot of dust on those roads yeah. and i started to realize this huge oil consumption and everyone's talking about oil in these things why do they need oil for i actually even went to a, a, a motor mechanic and uh, started talking about how would this work and basically the air filters are getting inundated with this dust then they mm-hmm. just don't function anymore. Then the dust is all going into the action, in, into the engines. And what they're doing is an improvised solution. Let's just pour oil through the engine, try and yeah. get this gunk out of there. Um, but of course, that's really taxing your engine. You're not really solving the problem. No, you're you're not, just you're trying honest. to get some of it out. Of it. And then you go and drive for another 23 hours on these terrible roads, right? What's happening to that engine? And then when the engine finally fails, and, and a lot of them start to fail by August, uh, Guderian's having a meeting with uh, Hort and uh, and Hitler when Hitler comes to visit. And he basically says, oh, we just need like 300, I can't remember the exact number, 300 engines. That's what we need. Now, if you go back to the factories, they don't produce more engines than tanks because why would they? We just, yeah. no one's ever it told us to do that. Tank, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's where we start to see other factors in the barbarossa that you know as a military historian you don't really think about you know i don't spend a lot of time thinking about how much i don't know aluminium supply does germany have you know you might think about oil and things but it's all connected and this is part of the reason why it's uh it's it's the implications of failure in the summer of 1941 have a huge number of knock-ons
0: right well i think and this is a what struck or one of the points struck me in one of your books um when you described the the, the actual the critical turning point was at the end of July, 1941. So we're uh, one month into the war and that's where uh, Germany lost when uh, they diverted the panzers it, from army group center to north and south respectively um, and gave up or paused the drive on Moscow. And that leads right into my next question. The first of what I think will be the really big questions about the Eastern Front. But I see we're running out of time for this episode. So I'm going to call a pause right now. And David ask you to come back again next episode. Thank you very, very much for joining me on Beyond Barbarossa. Listeners. The rest of this conversation will drop in just one week's time instead of my usual two-week schedule. So, join me on 10th April when I'll ask David Stahl, the author, the really big questions we all have about the Eastern Front of World War II. And thank all of you history Bus, for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. To find previous episodes of Beyond Barbarossa, visit the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com where you'll find maps and historical photos. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. And also thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely Your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you liked this episode, please follow Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also reach me through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Bird. I'm Scott Bird. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.